So if we were to ask where the next agile innovation will happen in the next five years, will it come from the incumbent vendors we have today or companies we've never heard of? My answer, companies we've never heard of. That's Harvard professor and CIO of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, Dr. John Halamka, our guest today on the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. John's here to talk about how innovative healthcare systems that embrace cutting-edge mobile and Internet of Things workflows will transform health delivery. After the show, check out our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com, where John outlines his top five predictions for what's next in healthcare IT over the next six quarters, including his thoughts on blockchain, machine learning, and more. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm Oliver Wyman. Join our online community on Twitter at OW Health Editor and subscribe so you never miss a new episode on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. Hello, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Charlie Hoban, partner in the health and life science practice at Oliver Wyman. In this episode, we are speaking with John Halamka. Chief Information Officer at Beth Israel Deaconess. John has been an innovator and thought leader in health IT for more than 20 years. From work in creating Beth Israel's first electronic medical record to work in shaping the Meaningful Use program that drove IT adoption across many health systems, to work at the national level in beginning to define interoperability standards, John has been on the vanguard of health IT. And earlier this year, John added a new role as the editor of a new peer-reviewed journal titled Blockchain in Healthcare Today. We're excited to get John's perspective on where we are in the evolution of healthcare IT and to get his read on blockchain, its potential, and where we really are today in finding its early footholds in the healthcare landscape. So, John, welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. And great to be here. And as you've said, I live the dream every day. So my role as a Harvard professor and an IT person is to share my experiences, good and bad. We'll hope that your listeners don't make the same mistakes that I've made. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, I'm sure they'll, they'll benefit from your advice and, and experience. Um, so let's maybe start at the highest level. You've been playing an active role in shaping and delivering the healthcare IT landscape for the last several decades. And you've seen cycles of innovation, of implementation, and of frustration. Um, Where would you say we are now in that? Uh, We've had a lot of innovation, but where are we today? What a fascinating question, because you look at the Meaningful Use Program, and on the one hand, it was good because we had a market failure. You were not getting clinicians and hospitals to adopt electronic health records fast enough. But on the other hand, it was bad because we moved so fast that we created lack of usability, interoperability, clinician burden, and those kinds of things. So in a sense, we're almost in the recovery phase. After this government mandate of meaningful use, ICD-10, ACA, hip omnibus rule, now we're really in a, what I hope will be an era where the private sector can create innovative new applications that address some of these issues of burden and usability and interoperability. So it's a good time, I think. Yep. Well, I think I think I think you're right. It feels it feels like we're at a little bit of a, a crossroads or a shift in terms of how and where innovation uh, may may happen. And I guess that that's a good segue to to the next question. Do you do you think that that innovation is going to be driven by 
the people who have led so far, the big incumbent vendors who I think we all can name? Or do you see maybe on the other end of the spectrum that we might be shifting toward, you know, a little bit more of an open innovation model where 26-year-olds are creating uh, applications and services in their garages? So I travel the world. I do about 400,000 miles of travel a year. Not fun, but very educational. And so what have I learned? As I look at every society, innovation is happening, as you say, by the 26-year-olds in their garages, by folks with maybe little healthcare domain expertise who partner up with a few folks who actually understand healthcare workflow and create an app that makes a substantial difference. And so Epic, Cerner, Meditech, Clinical Works, Athena, you know, you think about who is our marketplace, they're all fine. I mean, nothing wrong with them. Oh, but I think their job will be get the bills out, keep us compliant with every changing regulation, but leave innovation to this ecosystem of developers who will create cloud-hosted services and apps that layer on top of those existent incumbent transactional systems. And think of it, I guess, is, you know, Epic or Cerner or they're like, they're the iPhone. That's, that's good. And now the 26-year-olds are creating all those apps that ride on the iPhone, and that will create a much better innovation platform. Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly exciting. And, you know, when you walk around a place like Hims, for example, which is maybe a microcosm of, of your 400,000 miles, uh, you know, you see, you certainly see the big incumbents with their massive displays, but then you do see the thousands of, of innovators who are looking for that foothold. Um, and I think with, I think on one hand to your, to your point, have the opportunity to be populating that, that Apple store for, you know, uh, ecosystem, but then I guess have the, the challenge of finding a way into healthcare, which has been historically a very difficult market to sell into and innovate into. And I guess I'm curious as you think about that, uh, that pivot, that aspiration to more of an open innovation model. What do you see as the headwinds to that today? Why why has that been so difficult? Well, a couple of thoughts, and that is, you know, healthcare inherently is conservative, and sometimes in an academic medical center, and I live in one, so I can say this: a vote of a thousand to one is a tie, right? And so, <laughs> how does one introduce disruptive innovation? Well, the reality is there are three ways to influence a doctor: pay them more give them a better quality of life, or help them avoid public embarrassment, like a bad quality score or a malpractice assertion. So what I'm starting to see is these niche applications that just fundamentally change the workflow for some group of physicians, gets the physicians really excited. Wow, you mean I'll be twice as productive, I'll get home to have dinner with my spouse for the first time in three years, and my quality scores will go up? I, I can tolerate the risk of adopting that new app. And at Beth Israel Deaconess, we've already deployed about a dozen of apps in our curated app store, and they address issues in the surgical workflow or the medical workflow or the ambulatory workflow. And, and an example, you know, uh, the surgeons said, you know how hard it is to book an OR slot while I'm on vacation or sitting at a restaurant? And we thought, hmm, why don't we just create open table for the operating room. You know, I'd like an appendectomy for 2, 7.30, near a window, and you just book it, literally in five seconds on your phone. And that's the kind of thing that a surgeon is gonna say, this is so darn convenient, 
it addresses all of my needs and saves me time and has very little risk, I will use it. Yep. Yep. And that's going to, that particular point solution is going to be so far down the list on a, at an Epic or a Cerner that that'll never happen. But in an open environment, there's a, there's someone who's going to invent that and there's going to be a way for it to be adopted. And that's exactly right, because you look at those folks coming out of medical school today. And I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm ashamed to admit it, but you know, I'm 56 years old and the technology I grew up with was called Smith Corona. Do you <laughs> remember that manual typewriter and what a carriage return really meant? <laughs> oh, and inserting the erase cartridge. It, there you, you got it, exactly. And so the folks coming out of medical school today, you know, were born at a time when, you know, handheld computers and the internet and the sorts of, of technologies that we're seeing today have, have come out, been omnipresent. And so they'll say, well, why do we use a fax machine? You know, it would be a weekend's work to create an app to replace the fax workflow. So they'll see things that are obvious to them because of their life experience that are not necessarily obvious to those who grew up with Smith Corona. And in an academic medical center, and in the Boston area, we've got Harvard, MIT, Northeastern, BU, et cetera, you can't innovate fast enough for this new cohort of those recent graduates. Mm. They're putting different demands on you. Well, right, so think about it. When I started as a CIO in 1996, I would tell my uh, 20,000 users, oh, we're taking all the servers offline for a weekend for maintenance, and I wouldn't get a single response. Can you imagine in 2018 if I said, I'm taking the servers offline for 30 seconds? <laughs> they say, oh my God, you know, babies are going to die. <laughs> you'd, be in the, you'd be on the cover of the Boston Globe. Right. And so the requirements for security and reliability and agility in 2018 are so high. The way I describe it to my staff is it's like changing the wings on a 747 while it's flying. Right. right? You can't have downtime. You need to have constant change while protecting security. It's challenging. Yep. So that's the, that's the lens of innovation from the vendor end. I guess from a from the customer end, from the health systems, the payers who are trying to wrestle with this pace of innovation and the kinds of uh, kinds of decisions they have to make about where to adopt and the kinds of things to adopt, it's a bit, it's kind of a dilemma. I mean, there's so much happening. There is a limited set of resources, and I, I'm curious as you sort of parse through the different kinds of innovation, how you think about it. So, for example, things like AI and machine learning. You know, do you think that those are bets that we should be, that the, the, the industry and the systems need to be putting, putting big, big investment behind? Or is that, are we still in the, you know, the early part of the adoption curve and the S-curve of maturity where waiting to see it may be the, the most prudent decision? Sure. And of course, you have to be careful when any new technology is introduced. As we know from the Gartner curve, you go from to the plat, you know, immediately to the peak of inflated expectations before you hit the trough of disillusionment, and then you climb back up to the plateau of productivity. So I evaluate every technology as to its appropriateness, its fitness for purpose to solve a real business problem. So let's dissect a few of those. Machine learning, deep learning is real 
is exciting and is changing workflow in ways that are very positive. And that's in 2018. No, we don't have to wait till 2019. And let me give you an example. Suppose, Charlie, you do need your appendix out, but you're a young, healthy guy. You're, you're thin. You have no comorbidities. How much time do you need in the operating room? The answer is you get two hours. Why? Because since 1850, everybody who's needed an appendectomy gets two hours. It's a block. Yep. So what did we do? We took two million patients and we loaded the data into Amazon Web Services. And we then used some machine learning approaches to say, can you, Amazon, predict how much OR time I need for the patient in front of me? And the computer won't say two hours, two hours, two hours. It'll say, oh, you know, this guy is a 33-year-old, thin, healthy guy, 22 minutes. <laughs> right. And so by doing that, we were able to uh, reduce our OR utilization 30%. And so ask yourself the question, how many changes can you make in healthcare that sway a needle 30%. Right, right. <laughs> and, and if you have 2 million people that have already had surgery, I think you've got a pretty good learning set <laughs> yeah. to figure out who, you know, and if, if you're wrong, it's okay, right? Yeah, that's fine. The case runs longer. But you certainly, by default, are giving the right amount of time and not an excessive amount of time. And that works today. It's in production. And we have other systems in production predicting who won't show up to their appointment. Call them an Uber. Yeah. predicting when a patient will be discharged and then work back from the discharge date and time to schedule the tasks needed. And these are the sorts of things that aren't possible with standard business intelligence. You know, back in the day, you know, we had the, you know, OLAP and hypercubes and all those terms of art. They were more about looking at what we did in the past and then telling us whether we did a good or a bad job as opposed to predicting the future. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I would tell you, Beth Israel Deaconess has a strategy, and that is focus everything on machine learning approaches rather than traditional analytic approaches. So that's real. Oh, that's a big, that's but, a big shift. Yeah. But, but then again, you know, you got to be, we'll talk about blockchain. You can't suggest that blockchain will solve every problem and got to be careful with that. And there are all kinds of speculative technologies, Internet of Things, you know, it's good in general, but right. what do you do with the data? Right. I now have 10,000 blood pressure measurements, all 120 over 80 from Charlie. What do I do with that? Right. So, so evaluate every technology as fitness for purpose, meeting a business requirement. And certainly um, some are worth waiting on, but certainly machine learning. Go for it now. Yeah, that's that's. That's great insight, and I, I think uh, will resonate with lots of people who are facing those kinds of decisions. Um, so let's pivot to blockchain. Uh, I mean, that's that's clearly a topic in the headlines. It seems like we can't go a week without another announcement of some sort. Um, how do you think blockchain is going to become important in the industry? I mean, where where and how should we be paying attention to blockchain? It's a, a topic that people barely understand, uh, and frankly, I'd say most don't understand. Uh, certainly couldn't explain it to someone else uh, in a, a cogent or, or concise way. Um, how, how do you see that that idea of blockchain, you know, beginning to 
to play out. Absolutely. So I hear pitches from blockchain startup companies every day. And I've learned to recognize certain red flags. So let's just quickly talk about what is blockchain and where it could be useful. So blockchain is just a public ledger, not run by a corporation or a government. So if you have a challenge of saying, oh, I don't trust this company or I don't trust this government because they're the ones hosting all my data and it could be changed. Well, blockchain's decentralized, operated by thousands of independent actors, uh, really cannot be falsified or changed because there are certain cryptographic mechanisms used to ensure data integrity. So what are the possibilities if you had a public ledger that you wrote once to, could never erase, and was pretty much guaranteed to be accurate? Well, it turns out in the United States, we have 50 states, and therefore we have 50 different sets of privacy laws and 50 different consent policies, at least, because the state laws preempt HIPAA. And so what if I wanted to get Charlie's medical record? Well, what do you consent for the purpose of my using it for treatment, payment, and operations, for clinical trials, clinical research, um, you know, as part of a pharmaceutical post-market surveillance? You know, what's your preference? Well, imagine that you put up on a public ledger, and this was viewable by all. Here are my consent preferences. Respect them. Right. I'm not you're not revealing anything about your medical history. Right. And then any actor who wanted to exchange your data would reference your preferences on the blockchain and then respect your preferences. So that's potentially a, a good case. Mm-hmm. Or another case. And, you know, this is, you know, you, you, you may find this kind of a far fetched example, but it, it's a true example. Believe it or not, Harvard professors are occasionally sued for malpractice. Yes, it happens. I know. Hard to imagine, but I'm sure. Yeah. So, for example, you know, my 18-year-old didn't get into college. Clearly, the OBGYN made a mistake 18 years ago. <laughs> that's not, that sounds like Harvard and Boston. There you go. My daughter's 25, and she's graduated, so it's not her. Anyway, but uh, so point being, it, what if there is such an assertion? And a plaintiff attorney says, I need the entire medical record of this person's lifetime going back 18 years. And you say, beautifully, you know, here it is. And the plaintiff attorney says, oh, no, 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 this is fake. It's been altered. Things have been deleted or changed. The doctors went in and did something to protect them from, you know, future litigation. Mm -hmm. Well, blockchain, remember, is a public ledger. And I'm not going to put a medical record in that public ledger. That's not what you know, I would do in this particular use case. What I would do is use a cryptographic technique called a hash, where I could take the entire medical record of a person and do a mathematical transformation of it and reduce it to a series of letters and numbers. It's totally unique. And what does that mean? Well, if the medical record were ever deleted or changed in any way... <laughs> the hash value would be different. Mm-hmm. So what if every time a doctor signs off on a whole medical record, we do this mathematical transformation and digest and post the hash to the blockchain, and then 20 years go by, somebody says, well, was the medical record changed? Or no, look, the hash that we did 20 years ago <laughs> matches the hash of today, proving it could not have been altered along the way. 
so it's a data integrity check. And I, yep. that particular use case I've used in a multiple uh, production systems. I've been doing work with the Gates Foundation in South Africa to track HIV test results and to keep patients and families informed. And we use blockchain in a very similar way to make sure that the data isn't altered or deleted in any way and the patients can trust it. Uh, so those are some good examples. And the last example I'll give you is I hear from a lot of folks. Remember, cryptocurrency is different than blockchain. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Uh, I mean, so fine. Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, they ride on a kind of blockchain variant. Uh, but just because you're using blockchain doesn't mean you're using cryptocurrency. Uh, but for the moment, let's talk about cryptocurrency. What if I said, Charlie, you know, you, you're a medical altruist. And I would really like you to donate your data to science. And in return for doing that, I will give you a Bitcoin. Would you motivate patients to share their data if they were paid in cryptocurrency? Maybe yes, maybe no. But mm -hmm. I, I hear a lot of startups mm -hmm. thinking about how to use the blockchain and cryptocurrency as a way to motivate or reward behavior. Interesting. So as, as I read the, the headlines around, uh, around blockchain, and uh, as you said, you're getting pitched ideas daily or weekly, um, some of them focus on some of the things that are maybe some of the, the big problems of healthcare. So things like um, EHR interoperability. You see blockchain playing a meaningful role in some of those you know, big problems, whether it's interoperability or identity, um, you know, or, or provider directories or other, other things. Is that a, is that a block, is blockchain part of the solution there? Or does, is, is that a poor way of thinking about the, the application? So how about a, an answer to that? It's going to be a little equivocal. Maybe. <laughs> okay. And, and let me explain. So we know our, our good friends at United Health Optum and Humana, are creating a canonical provider directory for the country using blockchain. And that actually could be very good. I mean, we're gonna see how it works, and so it's very early days. But what if I wanted, I'm in Massachusetts, and I wanna send a medical record to a physician in Indiana. You know, how do I even figure out what the electronic address of a physician in Indiana might be? I mean, there is no national directory of every right. hospital and physician and electronic addresses. So what United, Optum, and Humana and others may do is create a blockchain-based uh, public ledger of all that information. So you know, it could be. I mean, one challenge with blockchain is it's really slow. What is, I mean, he, here it is, you know, 2018. What in 2018 is the total worldwide transactional throughput of Bitcoin? Four transactions a second mm -hmm. worldwide. <laughs> right. So, okay, you have to be careful. Maybe the provider directory is okay because you don't change your information about, you know, what, where you practice, what, you know, what kind of patients you see, your electronic address so often. So maybe four transactions a second works okay. But when people start using use cases like, oh, I'm going to write my Fitbit data to blockchain, like mm, that doesn't make any sense. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> With four transactions a second, how are 330 million people going to write, you know, Q2 minute data from their Fitbit to blockchain? Eh, probably need to do kind of blockchain. Right. Right. Um, and I guess the, to, to that same to that same point, as you deal as you think about different ways that interoperability is going to work, um, getting data, you know, to and from. You mentioned the directory question. Is there a way that you mentioned earlier that you wouldn't necessarily put the clinical data itself in the blockchain? Are there are there applications where we might see the blockchain as a a, a repository for clinical data? Well, how about this? You know, the MedRec project that Harvard and MIT did at Beth Israel Deaconess does something like this. We don't put medical data in the blockchain, but we put pointers to the medical data. And so what does that mean? So if you have a doctor's office visit or a hospital visit, we put simply a pointer in the blockchain. It's like, you had a visit. We don't say what it was for or what it's all about. And therefore, the blockchain could be a mechanism of unifying your lifetime medical record by simply keeping a directory of where you've been. Mm -hmm. But here is why that gets a little challenging. And I'm going to make up a completely false example. Um, but so make sure your listeners know this is a false example. <laughs> um, being a CIO is very, very tough. And therefore, I've had a drinking problem. And I had to go to the Betty Ford Rehabilitation Clinic for my drinking problem. And then I got very depressed. And I needed an inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. And then I got HIV. Now, imagine a pointer system that says we're going to tell you nothing about the medical record, just that there's a record at the Betty Ford Clinic, the McLean mm -hmm. Psychiatric Institute, and the Fenway HIV Clinic. But there's right. nothing about your medical record. <laughs> yeah, right. And so what MedRec did was it used a smart contract, which is a kind of part of blockchain, in this case Ethereum, to say patient Yes, we're going to put simply a directory of where your records are into this public ledger. But with a smart contract, you decide who can access that directory. Maybe the answer is it's the three doctors who are caring for you or your, uh, your, your children or some other person in your family that does care navigation. But it's not the general public. Mm-hmm. So that's where, you know, it's early. And so blockchain is a pointer system with contracts deciding who can look at those pointers it has potential. So I'm, I'm curious, as you, and, and again, you've, you've thought about this in the biggest picture. Do you think about blockchain as more analogous to um, sort of an evolution of sort of a, uh, an incremental technology? I'll, I'll, and I, this is probably going to be a bad example. Cloud computing moving data from, from uh, fixed assets into a more uh, ubiquitously accessible, portable, redundant, efficient uh, environment. But, not, but, but cloud computing didn't transform industries versus the internet where you know, suddenly entirely new kinds of processes uh, were possible. Is blockchain transformative to healthcare, or is it a sort of interesting way of solving certain kinds of problems, but it's really an, an IT infrastructure um, evolution? Well, so blockchain can be transformative, 
for certain use cases where we don't want to rely on a single corporation or single government and we want to have high availability and distribution of data. And so this idea of provider directories or, or person's health record directories or consents probably, again, it's very early, will be transformative and enhance interoperability. It's not just a tool. I mean, it's really a right. method. Right, right. Okay. Um, and I guess then as you, as you think about that, um, is this something where you, I mean, similar to your converse, your comment about at Beth Israel, machine learning is very high priority. Is Are you actively sort of thinking, uh, we need to be looking for the, the ways to apply blockchain? Um, you know, do you see it as a high priority for you? And do you think, again, is this, is this one that's a right now thing for the industry? Or is it going to be, a, is this a, a five years from now, we'll, we'll begin to see the, the real manifestations of blockchain. Sure, I mean, I think in any IT plan, you have to separate the, what is operational requirements today? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what in the next six quarters must I implement because there's a regulatory requirement or because there's a unique business requirement, et cetera, versus what is more speculative and we should explore. And so one role I play at Beth Israel Dicadis is I am the executive director of the Health Technology Exploration Center. And this is a place where technology companies can bring ideas and we'll test them against real healthcare data with real healthcare domain experts to determine whether they have promise. So I would put blockchain in this category of, no, it's not an operational imperative for the next six quarters but it's absolutely something to learn about and explore. Right. Right. And it, to your comment about it being slow, it, it also raises a question for me about to what extent is this something that will happen you know, that where it's an industry thing versus a, an entity thing, you know, your, your example of uh, uh, machine learning to drive innovation in scheduling of ORs you know, that's a, you can implement that at Beth Israel and immediately see a benefit. It seems like most of the blockchain implementations are things that are made useful as industry utilities that then, you know, gather value as more and more people use them, but they're, but it's really an industry level kind of evolution or transformation. Is that fair? Oh, and I think, I think that's right. So we look at Metcalf's law, which says you know, the value of the network is the square of the number of participants, right? So if you had a blockchain that had three physicians in it, no one would use it. If it has 500,000, then everyone will use it. <laughs> right, right. So what I think you'll see is narrow use cases developing at institutional levels to solve you know, what we'll call these experimental or exploration type problems but it's going to find real value when it is an industry-wide, fully rolled out and adopted technology. Excellent. Well, that's really helpful. And I think a realistic and at the same time, uh, ambitious view for how uh, blockchain may take the industry forward. And so I really appreciate your, your perspectives on that. The final question that we ask all of our guests, and this is not specific to blockchain or to your specific role, is around transformation overall. 
And so if you had all the money and resources and could wave your magic wand and make any single thing happen in the healthcare world, what would you change about healthcare? Wow, that is a tough question. Hey, can I say two things? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. So the first thing would be we need a nationwide patient matching strategy. Because it turns out that John Halamka is spelled John Halamakamaka, uh, John Halemka, you know, it's, and name gender date of birth just never gets you the positive predictive value you need. And so what we need as a country is to say, not that there's necessarily one technology or one provider, but a strategy by which we can identify people as they go from institution to institution so we can coordinate their care. And that might involve the use of biometrics. It might involve the use of data that I'm going to call referential, but not healthcare related. So what yeah. property do you own or what car do you drive or that kind of thing? So, but we need that strategy. Notice I didn't say we need a national healthcare ID because I do not believe that top-down, highly regulated initiatives are going to happen in the next two years so much. That's a good, that's a good guess. Yeah. And the other thing that I would hope for is that we can rationalize our privacy and consent policy. And not that GDPR and what the Europeans did is, you know, necessarily the best. I mean, it's, it's challenging in many ways, but at least it is a coherent policy for a whole region. <laughs> right. Because today, if you want to send medical records from New Hampshire to Massachusetts, and right, they, they share a border, and a lot of people live in one state, get care in another. You actually have two totally different sets of privacy laws and consents to deal with, and that is a real barrier to data sharing. Well, I think those are both very worthy targets, and uh, I think the kinds of things that, as you described, will, will require maybe not top-down, federally-driven uh, regulation, but perhaps some innovation from within, uh, within the industry and within the, the various constituents. So again, thank you for your, your time today. And uh, we really appreciate your insights. Great. Well, glad to be a part of it. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's episode, check out our other executive conversations on the business of transforming healthcare, featuring Aetna, Humana, Castlight, and many more. We also invite you to subscribe to the Oliver Wyman Health community on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. This way, you'll be notified whenever a new podcast goes live. For more on today's episode, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health, at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.